A reading from the prophet Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, Then I will dwell with you in this place, and the land that I gave you of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are, trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, to go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name? and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is from Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the gospel of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, both the word incarnate in your son and the word that you have inspired through your, in your scriptures. And we ask that now as we gather to this place and we sit with your scriptures, that you would be with us and bless us and that you would use this time by your spirit to make us more and more like Jesus into the people you have created us and are calling us to be. And so we ask your blessing on our time in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, in 2009, there was a group of about 20 pastors in Denver, Colorado, who gathered to think and dream and pray together about how their churches could work together to serve the community more effectively. And, how, and then they invited the mayor to join them for their conversation so that they could ask him the same question. What can we as the churches in this city do to help. And in their book, The Art of Neighboring, uh, Dave Runyon and Jay Pathak, they tell the story. They were two of the pastors involved in this meeting. And the discussion that followed, they tell us, as you might expect, uh, they named and lamented many of the social problems and the injustices that are all too familiar in urban centers, things we, we ourselves wrestle with and know about, addiction, dilapidated housing, child hunger, domestic violence, loneliness, unequal access to resources, risk factors that affect even the youngest of children. They're the same kinds of issues that plague our city as well, right? And not just in like an out there, in the news kind of way, you know, where issues live, but in a far more personal way for many of us, right? I mean, because our own stories and the stories of so many people we know and love and see every day are marked in powerful and particular ways by these very things. And if you live or if you work in the city, then you're also likely aware of some of the ways in which uh, the spaces you inhabit and the social dynamics you practice are often built around these very realities. You're aware of some of the ways that we all participate, intentionally and unintentionally, in these structures and these systems that exist the way they do. Because people who have built them have so often leveraged their resources towards self-protection from the pains of injustice. Or self-promotion upon the opportunity that inequality creates for those who can afford to exploit it for their own gain. And of course, we live in a city and in a world where the relative access that you have and the relative access that I have to being on the protective, promoting side of all this is, for the most part, something that we're born into, right? Or not born into. Whether you're on the, self, whether you're on the protective, promoting side or whether you're on the vulnerable, exploited side is so often simply just a function of our birth. And it's recognizing that reality, the apparent givenness of injustice that can be so paralyzing as we seek to live in such a city and in such a world as this. What should we do? What can we do? 
Well, as this group of pastors gathered in Denver to wrestle with this very question, what the mayor said in response was actually the thing that began to shake them free uh, from their paralysis and began to inspire really a movement of collaborative work among the churches in that city and the faith communities in that city. And what he said was just this. The majority of issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or at least dramatically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. If we could just figure out a way to be a community of great neighbors. He said, you know, people are always coming to me asking, you know, when things, there, there's certain problems that they're facing and they're, they're asking what, what kind of system, what kind of program can the city put into place to address these things? And there's a good place for all of that, of course. He's the mayor. He recognizes the good place for all of that stuff. But what he's saying is that if, if we would just learn to be a community of great neighbors, so many of these problems would be met in a deeper, richer, and more powerful way. And as this group of pastors was in the room talking about this after the mayor left, one of them just stood up and said, hey, am I the only one here who's just a little bit embarrassed? I mean, here we are. We're asking the mayor how we can best serve the city. And basically, the guy just tells us that it would be great if we could just get our people to obey Jesus. This second great commandment, right? Where Jesus, who says that the whole of the law is summed up in these two great commandments of love God Love your neighbor as yourself. And in their book, The Art of Neighboring, these two authors describe some of what they've learned and some of what they've witnessed, these really beautiful results uh, that they've begun to see in Denver as their churches have embarked on this journey of becoming better neighbors as a result of taking more seriously God's calling in Jesus for us to be doers and not just hearers of the word, and specifically doers and not just hearers of this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, our text this morning is this famous parable of the Good Samaritan, as it is often called, and Jesus here gives us this vivid picture of what neighbor love looks like, right, of what it looks like for us to be doers of this neighbor love, doers of God's word whose faith is authenticated and acts of love, and whose lives are thereby connected to God's purposes of extending his kingdom of justice and peace on the earth. And so let's consider this story together, and I hope especially for those of us uh, for whom this story is so familiar, maybe so familiar that we might not expect to be challenged by it in any kind of new or remarkable way. What I hope for us is that we'll begin to really listen to what Jesus says here and take it seriously. And that we would approach what Jesus says here not as religious experts who already know the answer, but as as humble disciples who need to hear something new. Now, the story begins with a religious expert who knows the answers, who comes and asks Jesus a question in order to test him. He's a lawyer, right? A lawyer. He's an expert in the law, and he's a, he appears in this story as a kind of interruption to what was going on. Now, if we'd been reading the chapter up to this point, we would have seen that this, this part of Luke's narrative is this moment where Jesus and his disciples are kind of reaching a sort of high point of their life together. 
as the disciples are beginning to actually understand a little bit of what it is Jesus has come to do, and he has sent 72 of his followers out to engage the world in mission, and they're coming back, and they're sharing stories with Jesus and one another of what it is that they've been seeing, what it is that they've been hearing, what it is that they've been doing, and there are these remarkable signs of the justice and peace and wholeness of God breaking into a world that is not the way it ought to be. And Jesus says to them in this private moment, he says, blessed are you who see what you're seeing. Kings and prophets long to see this stuff, but they didn't. But you're seeing it. Blessed are you. And then seemingly out of nowhere, a lawyer stands up. What's he doing there? It raises all kinds of questions about how Jesus' interactions with his disciples have been taking place in larger, more public spaces. And what, what are the boundaries between this group of disciples and others who are looking on? But as we've seen before in Luke, when Jesus is teaching, when he's doing stuff with his disciples, there are other people hanging around. The experts of the law, the religious leaders, they, they're interested in what Jesus is saying. And so they tend to to follow him around, and they're, they're checking up on him to see how closely he's adhering to the approved teachings of the law. And so we're supposed to see here, Luke wants us to see here, that the lawyer, he's not like a curious fellow who's wanting to learn from Jesus. He's, he's an adversarial figure who's wanting to do combat with Jesus. And we know that because of two things that Luke tells us. One is simply the fact that he's a lawyer, and that's not a lawyer joke. Rather, at this point in Luke's narrative, Luke has already let the cat out of the bag of who the people are going to be that will betray Jesus. Jesus has already said that he's going to have to be rejected by the religious leaders, the scribes, the experts in the law, and that he's going to have to be crucified. And so we already know that it's people like this that are going to end up being the ones who send Jesus to the cross. Secondly, Luke tells us this guy's motivation. He says he's there to test Jesus. We've seen this kind of thing already happen in Luke's gospel as these experts in the law test Jesus on his knowledge of the law. This guy's a watchdog. He's one of the theological watchdogs. That's who he is. And so we're supposed to know that before he starts talking, whatever he says next is not going to be the sincere seeking, but it's going to be a kind of testing, not in curiosity, but judgment. And so the first question he asks is this, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is not to say, he's not asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? That's not what he's getting at. He's talking about, how do I become a participant in the future that God has promised to bring upon the earth? So it's an idea that gets introduced in Daniel chapter 12, and then in the following centuries becomes a, a living and breathing part of the Jewish theology and imagination that would have been a, a pretty powerful shaping force in the thought and lives of those at this time. And what he's asking is, how do I become an heir, a participant, one who's included in God's just future, the future of the age to come? And so Jesus, he answers this question with a question. He says, well, what does the law say? He turns it back on him, right? Well, you know, how do you interpret the law? To which the lawyer actually gives a fairly impressive answer, right? 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It's the Deuteronomy 6 plus Leviticus 19 answer. And the Deuteronomy 6 part is this famous passage called the Shema, which if they had like bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets back then, this is the verse that they all would have had on their bumpers and refrigerators. Love the Lord your God with all that you have and are. But the Leviticus 19 part is the love your neighbor as yourself part, and that's that's not quite the same sort of greatest hits track. That's not the one that would have necessarily been on everybody's refrigerator magnet and bumper sticker. And what's impressive is that this lawyer who's questioning Jesus actually holds these things together in such a way that's very much like what Jesus does. And so when Jesus turns the table on him and asks him the question and he gives this answer, Jesus says, ooh, very good. Now, who knows? Maybe this guy's been hanging around Jesus for a while, and he's already heard Jesus himself say this. We know from other gospels and other accounts that this is Jesus' main way that he himself teaches the law, right? But however he's come to his interpretation, when the tester becomes the tested, he answers well. But he doesn't stop there. He's not one to be tested by Jesus. He's the expert, He's the watchdog. He's the one who's come to ask the questions here. And so he comes back with a follow-up. And Luke tells us that this lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asks a follow-up question. Now, there's some debate about what this means, right? The wanting to justify himself. Some will read this uh, in saying, like, this is, this is the lawyer wanting to know how to make himself righteous before God. Right? Okay, the command is love your neighbor. So I need to know exactly who that is so that I can do that, so I can do what the law requires. Or others who will see a similar kind of motivation, that he's wanting to make himself right before God, but he's recognizing the impossibility of such a command. He's looking for a loophole. He's looking for some way to kind of get out, maybe, of of all that the law requires. Sort of this, you know, give me a clearer job description, and I'll do that. Help me know who it is that I'm responsible to love and I'll do that. But others sort of see this in a different light, and it's because this lawyer's inquiry is not really sincere. He's not actually asking what he needs to do. He's not actually on a quest for his own self-edification here. But rather, he's coming as the legal expert who's wanting to throw his weight around. I'm the authority, not you. I ask the questions. Not you. And so what he's doing is he's posturing before Jesus and before all these hearers. He's, he's coming as the expert and wanting to sort of justify himself in their eyes as the expert. He turns the tables back around on Jesus, who's turned them on him, and asks another question. Either way, regardless of what this guy's doing, his motives aren't good, right? I mean, his, his approach to neighbor love, his approach to this question is ultimately self-serving. Whether he's trying to gain the favor of God or trying to gain the favor of his immediate audience, his posture is one of self-importance. And his neighbors, however they feature in this whole scheme, are serving his purposes rather than the other way around. And so from that posture, he asks the question, so who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? 
He's asking this question about how do we interpret this Leviticus 19 verse 18 commandment, right? And because that's a commandment that came in a context that was really different from the world they were living in. When the commandment was given and Israel was about to move into the land, love your neighbor, what that meant was love your fellow Israelite. Or perhaps love the resident alien in your midst, a proselyte or a God-fearer who's not an Israelite by ethnicity or background, but they've come into the nation of Israel and they're wanting to participate and take upon themselves life with Israel's God and by Israel's law. And so the command, love your neighbor, as originally given, was a command to love someone who's very much like you and who's living according to the way that you and your people are seeking to live. But you see, in Jesus' day, and in the day of this lawyer, they're living in a Palestine that is very different from that. They're living in in a Palestine that's on the back end of Greek imperialism and Roman imperialism and a lot of other influences, cultural and military and linguistic and every, every which way, that have come to shape the way of life in that place. And so the likelihood that your neighbor is your neighbor in the Leviticus 19 sense is a lot harder to tell. They're living with a lot more diversity. And so it's kind of a fair question. Okay, it's like, what what does God require of me? When he says, who's my neighbor, who is that? Is it my fellow Israelite? Is it everyone around me? Exactly who is it? that I'm supposed to love. And Jesus, really interestingly, introduces this parable as a response to that question as a way to say, you know, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking who is my neighbor, but I'm gonna actually tell you this story and prompt you in a very different direction, which is to say, how can you be a neighbor? You're starting on the wrong foot and you're ending in the wrong place. It's not who is my neighbor. It's how can I be a neighbor? And he tells this story. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk into a bar or whatever, right? It sounds like a joke. I mean, he tells this story with these three characters that have their, they're easily identified already by who they are. They're walking down this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and immediately, immediately, if you're this lawyer, you're hearing the story, and you have two obvious good guys, the priest and the Levite, And you've got an obvious bad guy, the Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. And so to to say, you know, I'm going to tell you now a parable of the good Samaritan, it'd be like telling us, I'm going to tell you the parable of the good neo-Nazi. You'd be like, that's not a thing. That's, that's That's nonsensical. But Jesus tells this parable to push, to push the lawyer and to push those who are listening, who are gathered around, to recognize something very important about what the kingdom of God is about and about what it is that God is doing in Jesus and what God wants to be doing through the followers of Jesus. And so he takes some of what he's already taught in the Sermon on the Plain in in chapters before this one where Jesus has already dismantled the categories of like friends and enemies And he's already begun to poke holes in the religious establishment. He's already begun to tear down verbally the walls between insiders and outsiders. And he takes that teaching, and in this story, he begins to put flesh on it. He begins to give it to them in 3D. And so there they are. You've got this man who was walking down the road. He's beaten and left for dead. 
What kind of man? Is it a Jewish man? Is this a Samaritan man? A Gentile man? Faithful? Unfaithful? We don't know. That's the point. And then people start walking by. First a priest. And then a Levite. These are the religious professionals, the the people who work at the temple, the people who are seen as the religious leaders of the day. And both of them, when they come upon this man, they see him and they cross the street and they pass by. But then comes this Samaritan, this other guy, the obvious villain of the story. But he doesn't pass by. What does he do? He goes over to this man, and he takes care of him. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to the inn, which would be sort of the equivalent of taking someone to the hospital. He puts up two days' wages to pay the man's bills at the inn, and then he opens himself up to kind of this open-ended, ongoing expense list. If the guy needs anything else, put it on my tab, and I will come back, and I will pay it later. It's pretty remarkable And the obvious villain becomes the hero in this story, and there are certain things about him that we're we're supposed to see and that this lawyer is supposed to see, and the first is simply what what it is that makes him tick, what it is that moves this man. He's moved by compassion. He has pity. He has pity on this, this man who's on the side of the road. In other words, he's moved in his heart by the same things that move the heart of God. And he begins to move toward this other person out of that. And then what we see happen when he does that is he he takes on this kind of expensive way of loving another person, right? It's self-sacrificing, it's generous, and it is risky. He stops whatever it is he's doing. That's one of the things that stands out to me is all the years I've read this parable, do you ever stop and think like, why was the Samaritan going down the road? He was going somewhere. <laughs> he had somewhere to be. But he stops whatever he's doing. He puts his own agenda on hold. And he takes care of this person that God has put in front of him. How often have you crossed the street <laughs> because you had somewhere to be? I do it every single day. You might as well. How often do we pass by others simply because we have big important things to do? My agenda, my schedule, whatever it is. How often do we fail to see? How often do we fail to love simply because we're already so consumed with whatever it is that we were already doing that we can't see what is happening right in front of us? The Samaritan was going somewhere, but he puts that on hold because he sees a man in need. And whatever, this, whatever situation this man is in is more urgent and more important than whatever it is he was already wanting to do. He loves the man as though he would want to be loved himself had he been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. He loves his neighbor as himself. And so he gives generously of his money and he pays for this man's lodging and food and he opens himself up to further risk and asks nothing in, in return. And he's able to love his neighbor and he's able to relate to his own schedule and his own resources 
not as though they're mine and can't be messed with, but open-handedly as one who's open to what God will do with these things. How often, as as I think about this, as you think about this, how often have our own impulses towards self-protection and self-promotion driven us away from our neighbor and thereby driven us away from the way of the love of God? And if you think about just the so many practical, normal obstacles, right? I mean, there's so many reasons that we cross the street, both literally and figuratively, right? And the spaces where you're out there, where obviously the scenarios as you walk by map onto this story a little bit more obviously as you see people on the street, but all the figurative ways as well, the the ways in which we move away from the needs of others that are, are relational needs, that are hard conversations, or that are just giving of time or a listening ear or humbling ourselves and being willing to be silent simply to allow a person uh, the honor that they need to be able to share their own story with us. There's fear. What am I getting myself into? What risk might I be taking on? There's, there's the real cost. There's our tendency to be self-absorbed, right? There's our problem. There's the, the paralyzing problem that we have where we don't know where to start. Or maybe the open-ended problem of like, we're not going to know where to stop. We're going to be doormats. We're going to be depleted. If we open that can of worms, when will it ever stop? All these ways in which our self-protective and self-promoting impulses become strategies that become ways of life, that become rigid habits, and we become the priests and the Levites of the establishment who just cross the street. And Jesus pushes on that. He says, which one was the neighbor to the man? It's not about who is your neighbor in the sense of let's make a list so that you make sure you get them all. Which one was the neighbor? Who was living as a neighbor to the man? And of course, even the lawyer has to admit it was the one who showed mercy. As I've been thinking about this parable this week, it reminded me of a picture of neighbor love um, that that I saw in the story of a guy named Daryl Davis. I don't know if any of you have seen this story, but Daryl Davis is this guy whose remarkable life and legacy of courageous neighbor love are documented in the film Accidental Courtesy. Anybody seen that movie? Accidental Courtesy, okay. It got a write-up in the Atlantic a couple of years ago, but um, anyway, Daryl Davis, is this, he's a keyboard player. And he's played for some of the greats, like Chuck Berry and Little Richard. Uh, And there was one day in 1983 where Davis, who's an African-American, was playing this gig at an all-white venue in Frederick, Maryland. And a member of the audience approached him at the break to come and compliment his keyboard playing. And as they got to talking, Davis learned that this guy, who's up here complimenting him, is a full-fledged member of the Klan. And so remarkably, what Davis does in this conversation is he begins to engage this guy in like real conversation. And he gets to know a little bit more about him. And then he asks this guy if like he would connect him with the imperial wizard of the clan. And so he goes and he, he reaches out to this guy, a man named Roger Kelly, who's like the, the big leader of the KKK. And this guy, Daryl Davis, goes and like befriends him. He goes and strikes up a conversation simply to say, hey, I just want to get to know you and I want to get to understand how can you hate me if you don't even know me? 
I'm just curious like how that works. And they struck up a friendship, Davis and Kelly. And eventually, uh, Roger Kelly, he ended up quitting the Klan. And when he quit, he gave his robe and his hood to Daryl Davis as a gift and as a token of his own transformation and repentance. And then 12 of Kelly's friends did the same thing. They began to quit. One by one, they began to quit because they didn't have a good answer. How can you hate me if you don't even really know me? They didn't have a good answer. And as soon as they did get to know him, they didn't hate him. And once they didn't hate him, they realized, this is dumb. This thing that we've been doing, it's wrong. It's dumb. And they stopped. And they, they traded in their hoods and their robes for friendship with him. And to this day, Daryl Davis has a garage full of KKK memorabilia from people who've quit the Klan because he's made friends with them. It's really remarkable. And as remarkable as it is, he's not without his critics. There's some within the community who, who really criticize Davis's tactics. And there's one guy, Kwame Rose, who appears in the film, who challenges Davis and he's just saying, look, stop wasting your time going to people's houses who don't love you. A house where they wanna throw you under the basement. White supremacists can't change. But Davis just responds with a shrug saying, I don't try to convert them, but if they spend time with me, they can't hate me. He's apparently a likable guy. <laughs> and Davis's legacy, though, of boundary crossing and even enemy embracing neighbor love is one of transformation and peace going viral within his own social circles. Not just his natural social circles, but the ones that he's selected into for the sake of loving others. Why? How is it that his legacy of neighbor love is one of such rich fruit and restoration? Very simply, because he was willing to go first. He was willing to take the risk to love in an unjust world. He was willing to take the risk of loving a neighbor who might not love him back. Even an, a more powerful neighbor who might not love him back and have the power to do harm. And you can almost hear Jesus' voice looking over the whole situation and just asking, and which one was it who acted like a neighbor to the man? It was the one who showed mercy. It was the one who showed mercy. Yes. Go and do likewise. In your own neighborhoods. With your own friends. With your own enemies. With your colleagues at work. With the people you pass on the street. Or with the people who live across the street from you whose names you never even really bothered to learn with your roommates, with your children, with your spouse. It's not about figuring out who deserves your love or who is it that you're responsible to love. That's asking the wrong question, who is my neighbor? But rather to ask the question, what does it look like to become a neighbor to the person in front of you? Becoming a neighbor to those whom God puts in your path.
Someone who's able to look upon the person across from you and see them as God sees them, as his beloved. And someone whose heart is moved by the same compassion that moves the very heart of God and begins to move toward others in the same way God has moved toward us in Christ. Your time is God's time. And your resources are God's resources. And your neighbor is God's beloved. And so are you. It's all his. We're all his. What would it begin to look like if we learned to love with that love that God has first loved us with in Christ, right? And if that love began to go viral in your own life and through your life in the lives of those around you, what is God calling you to risk, I think is the question. As we think about this neighbor love and what it is that it means to move across our comfort zones and move into the lives and move toward the needs of others, what is, it, what is it that God's calling you to risk in the name of love? Because this is how we get to know God in Christ, God who's risked everything for us, who's put himself beneath us to embrace us. And this is actually the life that God himself has called us to in Christ to save the world one neighbor at a time. That the work of Christ in you is to make his love known to your neighbor. This is how God has loved you in Christ and his voice over us today, his call to us in him is go and do likewise. May God give us grace that it would be so. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the way in which your heart toward us is moved to compassion. We thank you for the way that as you look upon the whole of our life and you know us to the very core of our being, that you don't recoil from us. You don't withhold yourself from us, but instead you give of yourself generously and lavishly. We have been loved like that. Would you open our eyes to see ourselves as your beloved in such a way that you open our eyes to begin to see the person next to us and across from us, however similar or different they may be, that we would see them through your eyes as your beloved, and that we may see all that we have and all that we are as yours and as instruments of your love. And would you give us grace to steward our lives and to take risks in trust that this is the way of life in and with our Savior Jesus. God, we need your help to live like this. We need your help to see your kingdom come. So would you do this in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.